Hi, I'm Dave Ferguson, pastor of the Collegedale Church here on the campus of Southern Adventist University. Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in Scripture to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. Well, happy Sabbath to you. It is a delight to be here with you right now. We're going to make a little bit more room on this stage because I'm going to invite some friends here. This is a beautiful time of year. I don't know how many of you love, would you just raise your hand. You love the colors of fall. I do. I saw, I saw a hand shoot straight up. Yes, me too. I'm in the, let me get a little higher. Indeed. And in, in, in truth, I will admit to you as well, I love this time of holidays coming up. And as we consider the things we have to be thankful for, I'd like to bring four friends of ours, if they're not friends of yours yet, they will be in a moment, friends of ours that we are thankful for. Some of you might have noticed it in the first service. I was sitting in a row where one uh, of the women turned to her husband and said, I don't know that I've ever felt safer in church. And so I'd like to invite the the police officers and staff to come on up and join me right here. We're just going to circle around behind this, this, uh, this table because we'd like to have a prayer of dedication and thanksgiving over the police force here in our Collegedale area. Now, of course, we're served by state troopers and by a police force from the Hamilton County, but these are our police folks right here in Collegedale, about 28, I think, officers in the, in the force. And so I want to introduce them to you. First of all, this is corporate, or corporal, sorry, corporate. I made you into a whole company all to yourself. <laughs> corporal Corey McNeil, and thank you. Yes. Next, next here is our officer, Julia Arrowwood. Julia Arrowwood. And Officer Michael Hicks. And Corporal Bill Hoback. And I, I hope, I hope first of all, hope first of all you have a good relationship, that there's nothing that, that causes tension between you and any of these fine folks. But the other thing is, Uh, Many of you have a journal with you. We're going to give you journals here in a moment if you don't. But if you have a journal, you might flip that open. And I'm going to say these names again for you. And I encourage you to write at least one of these names down so that you would continue praying throughout the week. Again, this is Corporal McNeil, Officer Arrowwood. Let's see, I've got Officer, I know it's Hoback down there. Hicks, that's right, Michael. Michael Hicks, I was trying to go just right off my memory. You see the flaw in that whole plan. <laughs> this is Michael Hicks, and then our Corporal Bill Hoback. We're going to pray corporately right now, but would you also commit to praying for them, for their safety, for their courage, of course, for the compassion and their wisdom spent on our community in service? And so, if you don't mind, let's bow our heads together as we pray over these officers. Lord God, thank you so much for your love for us, all the ways you take care of us, the the simple things that we take for granted and the more complex, our freedom, our safety, our sons and our daughters, our families in this community. We love living here and we thank you for the reasons, and not the least of these, 
We thank you for those individuals that serve so often without our thanks. So many times we've gone just blazing past maybe, hoping, making sure that we're in no way in trouble. Oh Lord God, thank you that these men and women are much more than that for us. That they've given themselves to our safety. And so we pray a blessing on them today. And may you, Lord God, keep speaking to us to help us know how we might bring that blessing each day into their lives through more prayer, through a smile, maybe even a surprising hello officer by name. Lord God, we lift them to you in Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for coming to our service today so that we might remember you and so that we might pray over you, not just in this moment but through the course of this week and on. Thank you so much for your service. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to worship once again. I hold in my hands right here the little package that my wife and I have claimed. If you came in through the North Atrium here or when you go out through the North Atrium, you're gonna notice that there is a table with some of our students and leaders from the Office of Ministry and Mission. These, we, some of you know, some of you know exactly what these are because you've done this with regularity. I just wanna remind you that they are out there. There are about 75 more packages. These are packages filled with our love and our hearts for our students who have traveled around the world to serve in missions. And come this time of year, we love sending them a gift package from home. If you've ever been a student missionary, you know, come this time of year, the holidays hit, and you do, it hits you a little bit in the heart. You, you wish you were at home for a little bit, and so we're trying to send some home to them. So I hope you'll pick up one of these packages. You can ask around out there about how much it'll cost to mail them. Some of them are a little more expensive than others, but I know you, and I know you're gonna wanna be involved in this, so I wanted to remember, this was the way I was gonna remember to say something about this, was to bring this package up here, because it seems like it would be hard for me to forget at that point. So, very good. As you know, if you are a part of our routinely attending or listening family, you know we're in the middle of a series, RE, R-E, 
colon. And uh, right now, I know we have some deacons that are positioned somewhere, maybe in the back. If you don't mind coming forward, because they'll be looking for, looking for you. But we have uh, giveaway journals for you for our re-series. Very good. Thank you so much. And if you are here and you don't have one, you please just raise your hand and we'll give one to you. This might be the only time you're here. Well, I probably shouldn't take one then, right? No, wrong. You should have one. You might say, well, I'm a little too young. I'm a child. No, perfect. This is perfect for you or a little too old or I'm not going to write while I'm here. Fine. We have plenty of them. Raise a hand. Just look every once in a while. Spin around and look because I see more hands. Uh, And we're going to give these to you uh, even if this is the one time. Now, they're completely blank inside. You get to decide what goes in there. Just like some of you wrote down maybe... uh, one of the officers' names, Hicks, Michael Hicks, is the one that I forgot a moment ago. Lich, I've got it now, Officer Hicks. <laughs> but if you, oh, there's another hand right down here. I tell you what, can you get, grab this hand here? Thank you, Jim, for making that work. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Because what we're going to do in a second, I'm going to give you a couple of things to write down. But you get to decide what's important. Jim, if you'd like, just give her this one. There you go. Very good. <clears throat> So as we get going, though, turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Those of you that have been with us regularly know we've already traveled through Nehemiah chapter 2, but uh, we're just going to start and frame our conversation through Nehemiah chapter 2. But before so, I'm going to start by giving you a journal question. I give you this not so that you work on it right here and right now, but maybe as a family you want to talk about this, as a family worship, maybe in a small group that you have. Maybe you journal on your own or just like discussion starters in the car with your spouse. In any case, the journal question today is this. A habit I would like to strengthen is, you finish that, a habit doesn't mean you don't have it at all. Maybe you have this habit going and it's getting, it's getting stronger or maybe it's weakened recently, but you would like to be stronger in this sort of way. A habit I would like to strengthen is. And then if you're a child and you like to keep track of words or maybe you're a little older and you like to do this too, that's fine. I'm going to give you four words today and here they go. Won't surprise you that the first one is rebuff or buff. Then Nehemiah reproach, and survivor. Again, rebuff or buff, Nehemiah, reproach, and survivor. And you can just decide, I'm going to take, keep a tally. I'm going to see how many times Pastor Dave says survivor. Oh, one more. There we go. <laughs> Three. Very good, very good. As at this point, you have found your way to Nehemiah chapter 2. As we begin and launch into this, our sermon in the re-series entitled Rebuff. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17 reads this way. Then I said to them, this is Nehemiah writing these words. Then I, Nehemiah, said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. With that framing, I invite you to bow in prayer, Lord God. Bless us. We, we ask a blessing on our time in your word. Here as a family, grow us, move us, shape us. Bring us to repentance if need be, please. We listen for you. And we claim the promise that you will speak through your spirit here. In the name of Jesus. Amen. 
And amen. I, I, uh, are, are you like me in, in this small way? I have on occasion used words that I have never looked up their true meaning. I've used them as I've heard other people use them. You know, you, you kind of pick up from how people are using a word, what it must mean, and so you start using it, and then you discover that there was more to it or maybe a slight difference, or maybe even the opposite meaning. Anybody had that embarrassing moment? Okay, well, I, I was thinking about the word rebuff, and oh, I've always thought of it, uh, um, and I, I think I'm generally correct, as, as some form of, of uh, repulsing something or rejecting something. Something's happening, and you rebuff it. You could rebuff a, uh, an invitation to go somewhere with someone. It could be a date, and you rebuff their request, right? But I had never really checked in on it. I, I did so, and there's a little texture. There's a little texture, Lich, of this word that I had been missing, and I want you to find it with me. Maybe you already knew this, and that is that the definition of rebuff includes this, this last piece. It, to reject, I have that part, to reject in an abrupt or ungracious manner. So lots of things that you might need to reject, but there's that interesting twist at the end, in an ungracious manner. And I was thinking about that definition, and it just drew me to a story that I want to try to share with you. It's a difficult, challenging story for me to share. Uh, I'm going to try to protect the innocent and possibly those who are not so innocent in how I share this story. I was here uh, in this facility for some meetings. Now, a couple of things. One, I was in the fellowship hall, seated around tables uh, for some meetings, but they weren't meetings of our church family. It was another group on which I sit. Um, and so this story takes place not with a member of our church, but somebody who is there attending these meetings as well. I sit down right by this other individual who I know of, don't know terribly well, and they turn to me and they say, ah, ha, <laughs> this morning I had to read the riot act to one of your and then he used the word sextons. We, use, we call them hosts now. What you should know is that uh, whenever the church is open, we have an employee of ours that is serving to make sure everybody has what they need. They can get in where they need to go. They have all the technology that they might need. So he was saying, I read the, the riot act to one of your hosts this morning. And he was saying it with pride. Now, first of all, I learned from Matt that there could be some of us that don't know what the riot act is. I actually kind of had to go look it up, Matt. Turns out in 1714 or something like that in Britain, a riot act was formed, and what would happen is when a crowd gets unruly, <laughs> along the way, some authority would step up and read them the riot act, and then they'd have an hour to disperse or be arrested. In other words, if you read somebody the riot act, the idea is, I told them, you have to stop, you have to change, I re and, and it's abrupt, and it's not about politeness, it's, here he was, so I'm sitting there, and I, when, when somebody does this with me, I'm never quite sure what it is that they're trying to do, but knowing that I'm the senior pastor here, I almost felt like he was trying to get a chance to read me the riot act. Because if I had to do this, that means you didn't do something, that's the way it kind of felt to me, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just extending something past what is meaningful, but he was telling me, I had to straighten out your team. And I told him, he explained the situation. There were some southern students who were in the South Atrium because earlier that morning, very early that morning, this group had also had some breakout sessions in the South Atrium, and he said, I, I was there, and they were there, and they told me they could be there, and I told them, no, no, you can't. You may not know who you're talking to. But uh, you are not allowed to be here. You've got to get out. 
So when I think of that definition, to rebuff, this is kind of what I think of. Because here, with a measure of pride, this individual is sharing me this story, which I could hear no other way than that he had rejected this group in an ungracious manner. Now we're going to dig into that story. We're going to think a little bit in the context of Nehemiah as we go forward. But to start with, let's get a little bit of a running start. We've been in Nehemiah 4. And you know that Nehemiah has come to Jerusalem to build up the walls that had crumbled down. And in fact, where we left things last week is that the walls were half built because the people, do you remember this? The people had a mind to work. It isn't but four short verses later and we hit this. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving up, out. Have you ever had that? You had a great start. You got things really cruising. You got going. You got about halfway done. And then, really, we're only halfway done? And their strength gave out. But there's something interesting because all along in this story so far, there have been threats of attack against Jerusalem, against the the children of Israel, against Nehemiah and his groups. We don't actually hear the story of exact attack, but there are threats from everywhere And you might have thought that the worst thing going on for Christians is the attack of the heathens, the attack of those who are non-believers, the attack of the world outside. But I'm going to suggest to you that our story takes a twist and a turn and reveals to us the most challenging attack that can occur. Is it possible that the most damaging attack on the work of Christ typically happens inside the walls. Well, it starts this way. Uh, Going on from there, Nehemiah writing, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. There was this threat, this sense of terrorism that could happen at any moment. And then in comes verse 12, then the Jews who lived near them, them being those who were making these threats, when the Jews who lived near them came, they told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Wherever you turn, they will attack you. Wherever they turn, they will attack you. Wherever they turn, they will attack you. Ten times over. I did four there, I think. Is it possible that it is just as or more damaging to the work of Christ when we just latch on to and repeat and repeat and repeat the message of the enemy You know, I've had on occasion somebody say, from out there somewhere, something a little disparaging about the Collegedale Church, but it's rare. Do you know who I hear disparage the Collegedale Church? Us. We say it. We say the message of the enemy. Well, you know, it's, it's, they're difficult people. They don't want to get involved, and they have this. And who are we talking? We're talking about ourselves. And we repeat it, and we repeat it, and we repeat it, and we repeat it, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The devil, the, the enemy, it doesn't have to attack. We've turned on ourselves, even in the messaging of our mind. I want to suggest to you, when we do this, we do the work of our enemy by rehearsing the enemy's threats. The enemy said it once, as Nehemiah tells it, 
and wants to make sure you heard it, that actually we did it repeatedly. About the time anybody's having a good day, we told them, hey, but you know you could be attacked any second. <laughs> things are going well, yeah, but we're going to be attacked, we're going to be attacked, we're going to be, have you noticed that when we ask each other how things are going, it's a lot easier to tell people the difficult things than the great victories. And about that time you share a difficulty, the person that you just talked to thinks, okay, we're playing that game, all right. Well, I've had an even worse one, let me tell you. When we rehearse the threats of the enemies, we tear down the work and we discourage and we dissipate our energy. And in we fly to Nehemiah chapter 5, where things get even more challenging, a little bit more dicey. The first verse reads this way. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. So you have a group that is just saying, look, there is a problem here. I need, we, need to, we need to think about this problem here among us. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and to stay alive, we must get grain Others are saying, we are mortgaging our fields and vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. While still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood of our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. So what's going on here? Here's what's, here's what's going on. The people return to Jerusalem from captivity, and they've got nothing. They've got very little it's been desperate, it's been difficult, it's been open season on them for quite some time until now when Nehemiah comes with a decree that says they can in fact rebuild, but they've got very little. Well, well, that's not exactly true. Many of them have very little, others have quite a lot, and that's the way it always is, right? Have you noticed? That while some are having a great day, others are having a terrible day. One is healthy and the other one just got a death sentence from their doctor. One, the children are all happy and great and another one, there is turmoil and difficulty. One marriage is thriving, another one is breaking apart. And that's not just out there, is it? It's every bit as much in here. And one has the resources and another is struggling. So that's what's going on here is that there are individuals, their outcry is, we aren't making it. We don't have enough food to eat. And so what has happened is our family lands, we got two things to leverage to try to have enough to feed our family. Number one, we can mortgage our land. And the way that works is we have this brother over here, this member of our faith right over here who has the resources and what they've said they will do is they will give us resources but it's a written contract for our land and they now own our land until we can pay them back with interest and the word that will be used in scripture in a moment is usury interest which means the kind of interest that is not likely I can actually afford but I am in such a problem that they can charge me. 
And because they know they've written up this contract in such a way, they know I'm probably never going to be able to pay this back. There's written into this clause that if I can't pay it back after a certain period of time, my sons, my daughters become enslaved to them. And these are people of the faith doing it to each other. Thank goodness. Nothing like that ever happens here where one member of the faith holds something over another member of the faith to their own personal gain, keeping them down and under their thumb for the rest of their lives. Thank goodness. Thank goodness no one here would, I would not carry a grudge. Thank goodness we would not, when somebody's name is brought up, immediately kind of flinch with a... That's all we have to say is, yeah, to that person's name, and everybody around gets it. Thank goodness there's no one that we would refuse to sit at their table or to invite them to ours. Thank goodness that doesn't happen here, or does it? Well, of course it does. Of course it does. And it might not be dollars and cents funds and money, but you may have, ha- have an acceptance in the community where somebody else goes alone. You may have talents while another wishes they had opportunity. You may have the voice in the room where they have an idea that will never be heard without our building one another up instead of tearing each other down. Well, Nehemiah has heard all of this and he responds in writing this next verse, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very, very angry. This gets said once. There's a lot that goes on in Nehemiah, but only once is Nehemiah characterized as angry. He is crestfallen. He is discouraged. He is filled with despair when he realizes the condition of Jerusalem. But here, now, hearing what's going on inside the walls, he's furious. By the way, a little side note is notice how he writes this next verse. It adds in, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry and I pondered them in my mind. Is that what you do? Got furious and I typed out a tweet and I sat with that for two days just looking at it. Didn't hit send. I watched somebody be picked on unjustly, and I was furious, and so I pondered. Well, I'm not, I don't know about you. I'm not a good ponderer. I have, I have been given a quick tongue, and I feel like, well, then I should probably use that. <laughs> boom, boom. I think it's a fantastic, fantastic tip for the people of God when it is not likely you're going to go this life without some anger, but when angry, first step, first move, ponder, slow it down. Maybe you have somebody in your life who's really good at this or was willing to say to you, you know, I think we should just take a step back. Let's just, let's think about this first. But that does not mean you do not respond or that you do not say anything for next will come Nehemiah's explanation. So I told them you are exacting usury. This thing where you are you're creating a relationship where you're lending to them in a way that you know they're never going to get out from under you. 
My father tells the story, he was pastoring in North Carolina and it took him a while to figure out what was going on, but he would stop as he would be visiting different parishioners along the way, his district, from one church to the third church over, it was 100 miles in a straight line, and so he was wandering around North Carolina visiting different people and he would stop for gas and he would start to realize what was going on and he would ask questions and what he found out was what, what he was bumping into were lands that were being used for sharecropping. Do you know what sharecropping is? Typically African-American families that were given tools, probably a mule, the seed required, and they could go to the store, to the, to the local store. He was, he was finding his way into these to get a little snack or something to drink as he was driving around, and, and he would bump into and hear the stories. But the thing was that these, these, these sharecroppers, they were free to leave any time they wanted to, provided they could pay off their debt. But the problem was, half of their earnings were to go to the person who gave them the land, and that person had the ability to keep raising prices all throughout the year to make sure there was no possible way that they could pay off their debt. Now, they were not enslaved, but usury was going on. And in fact, here we have this exact story. I told them, you're exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And I said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles, and now you are selling your own brothers and sisters only for them to be sold back to us. What are you doing? So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let the exacting of usury stop. Give this back to them immediately. I wonder how this would be translated out across our community because we don't have this exact situation, but I wonder where a voice from Nehemiah would say, you need to give it back. That person's reputation that you have been bludgeoning, you need to give it back. The friendship you have withdrawn from, you need to give it back. The forgiveness you've been withholding, you need to give it back. The viewpoint of respect for that person, you need to give it back. The graciousness you withheld and replaced with an ungracious manner, you need to give it back. If we've learned anything from the Christ of the New Testament, it is this. All things you need to say and do can be done with grace. If it cannot, you need not do it. If it cannot, you need not say it. Well, but I need to. They're in the wrong. Not without grace. Not without grace. Wherever Meg is, I think Meg is in this room somewhere. I understand her. The long version of her name means grace. This is a story about grace. Yeah, but they owe me. Maybe they did it first. Grace. And in fact, in the midst of this, a word shows up that I'd like to point out to you in that ninth verse of chapter 5, shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach 
of our Gentile enemies. The word reproach means disappointment, deep disappointment, discounting levels of disappointment. Don't, don't you want to walk in the fear of our God and avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? The reproach of whom? Well, who is it that they're disappointed with? There's an interesting truth here. And that is that when we beat on each other, tear each other apart, or distance ourselves from each other, that's different than when the world does it. Don't you think, which, which is it that's harder, to suffer a physical abuse from a stranger or from the person you believe should love you most? I think the first is far more recoverable. And what about us? Yeah, there's the attack and the threats from outside the walls, but what if the great danger we face is what's going on inside the walls? It hurts more when a fellow believer does you wrong than when somebody who doesn't believe. And the reproach, the disappointment, is not with me. It's with the God who we fear. You see, if, if someone is, behaves wrongly toward the Christian who is a non-believer, we are able to demonstrate and point out that the only way is the Jesus Christ of the cross. That's our future and that's our hope. But when the Christian misbehaves against the Christian, it is the world that looks on and says, I think there is no Christ. Or if there is, he's not worth following The more dangerous, the more difficult, the more destructive peace is the, is the attack inside the walls because of this reproach. And who's the reproach on? The reproach is on God himself. This, this word pops up in Hebrew in different ways. It's translated in different passages. In the first chapter of Nehemiah, the brother who comes to visit him and tells him how bad it is back in Jerusalem tells Nehemiah these things. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. Again, elsewhere, and we read it as we began, then I said to them, this is in Nehemiah 2, as he is motivating the individuals to build up the wall. He says, I say to you, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. But the original language there, which in those two passages are translated in disgrace, are just as easily and maybe better translated, we will be a disgrace. The disgrace is on God. You think about why the walls were being built at all. Is it just so that there was a safe place for the people of God? Well, that's in part, but that's not really it. These walls were not primarily about keeping outsiders out. They were about building up what was going on inside. And what was inside? the temple, the home, the place of God himself, so that when these walls are a shambles, it is a disgrace that the world looking on would be disappointed with that God and would say there is no God. 
The building up the walls, the building up of ministry, the building up of what we are doing here is about the character of God. It's not about how big a church we can have. It's not about how wonderful the music could be for us or the preaching or how well you're dressed. It isn't about those things. It is about the character and the nature of God himself. But the problem is we buy the notion sold to us from outside that what the walls are really about is keeping others out. But I warn you, the message of Nehemiah suggests it. If we are primarily about walling off people different from ourselves outside, we will do the same thing to others inside. And we will build walls of our own little groups. I go to a worship service where we listen to the pipe organ. I go to one where we can have a little bit of a band. I go to one where we get to wear jeans. I go to one where everybody who attends was hurt the same way. Mine's a group of young people. I've got another one with all the people in my own little. We become our own little focus groups defined by us. But Jesus says that this city is not about keeping outsiders out. It's about building up what is inside. And the most dangerous thing is when the insiders are tearing down the inside. And I just want to suggest it to you. You and I Human sinners have a predilection, a leaning toward tearing other people down. Sometimes for the fun of it. Sometimes out of our own hurt. Sometimes out of arrogance. Sometimes accidentally. But we tear people down and it is a disgrace to the character of God and shouts and speaks out, maybe this God I say I follow is not the God for you. Let's think about this. Jim and I have been talking about it. I've been praying over digging through this. What, what is the importance of the walls? I want to suggest that the importance of these walls was far more than what it keeps out. In fact, the importance of building up these walls is what it contains inside. That as we work, it is not to differentiate ourselves from those outside, it is to associate ourselves with the God who lives here. To take on his character, to show what it means, and to show that we don't have to be the same to be a part of this same body. That we can be knit together. God's grace is so powerful that he takes the ungracious and makes them grace-filled. Um, I was thinking about this as I was playing through, and you, you guys know the wordplay in, in this particular series is something I enjoy. <laughs> and so that, so that not only do we have the word rebuff, which means to reject, possibly with an ungracious manner, but also I get to talk about the word buff. We already said, you know, strength, and I was trying not to intimidate, particularly Matt there with my uh, pose. There's another form of the word buff that I find kind of interesting. Some of you know what this is. Others of you might not. It's kind of blending almost a little bit into the fall colors, but this is a, it's a sleeve. It's like a tube you can stick your head through, and so it's like a neck scarf gaiter kind of a thing, but it's made of breathable material, and if you pull it up, if you're cold, it actually holds in some warmth. If it's hot, it actually can cool you. 
Some of you also know that in 2000, in May, there was a television show that CBS launched that still is going on today called Survivor. Anybody here watch Survivor on occasion? Yep, so those of you know what I'm talking about when I say the word buff, a Survivor buff. See, what happens is there may be a million dollars that somebody's trying to win by being the last person out of, I don't know, 16 or something like that, 20, to be the last person not voted off of this group, right? and voted for to win this whole thing, and then they win a million dollars. But the way it all starts is, often coming in on a boat, they're dumped onto the beach of some foreign place, and they're split into groups, into teams. It might be two teams, three teams, four teams, depending on exactly what they're doing. And the first thing they do is they give them all buffs that look a little like this, because the buff gives them their identity. You know everybody wearing this buff. Somebody might wear it around their neck, on their head. Somebody might wear it as a tube top or tied around their arm. But if they've got this green buff, they're on that team. And it's, it's a thought I wonder about. Do you and I, do we create teams within this body, excluding others? We're more like them. We don't like them. We disassociate with those and we associate with those. And we create our own little invisible buffs. So we're a group. Maybe it's time to redo our identity. To understand the cause of Christ is a grand and open place. What if what is inside the walls of the kingdom of God is somehow miraculously bigger than all that is outside the walls. We think of it as the smaller place that we gotta keep out people out of. We treat people poorly. They're not good enough and of course part of that in that conversation is sooner or later I start to realize neither am I. But what if somehow like the Chronicles of Narnia wardrobe, when you go in, it opens up to a bigger world And where the kingdom of God is in these walls, there is space for everyone and there is an amazing kind of texture of grace that makes people who would be enemies brothers and sisters. It's one thing to create a club of people who love to hang out together. It's another thing to stitch together a body out of people who are not naturally in tune with each other. Now that's the grace of God. Now that's something that goes and blows reproach out of the water. And the real threat to it is not what attacks we have from the outside. The real threat is the attack from the inside. I told you a story at the beginning, but the second half of that story is a little bit painful, and I'll do my best to share it with you. I was suspicious about it when this gentleman sat down, turned to me, and said, hey, pride welling up. I could see it. This is my judgment of the situation, but... Hey, I had to read the riot act to one of your hosts, one of your sextants today. I had to tell him what it was. Straighten him out. As he did that, I had a suspicion, but it wasn't until I got home that I found out for sure. You see, you know that I have children, three of them. One is Emily, then Alyssa in age descending order, then Isaac, who prefers going by Izzy right now, and Izzy was working as one of our hosts. 
And Izzy, I happen to know, was there very, very early because there were a group of film students who had reserved a room in the South Atrium very early in the morning to film. And during the time pocket when they were allowed and supposed to be there, this story occurred. Somebody, not even from our family, wanders in and says, hey, look, you're not supposed to be here. We have this space. And the one person who's actually in charge (laughs) is Izzy. And they step up and say, actually, no, they've got this reserved. No, you don't seem to know who I am. You got to get out. I'm certain that that gentleman has no idea. He was telling me a story of how he spoke to my child. I know he doesn't realize that that day Izzy decided to quit working here. And without question, he wouldn't know that today, Izzy would not describe themselves as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And that if you ask them why that is, the story I told you today would be the first story he would tell you. And I've had to sit beside that gentleman repeatedly since. And let me tell you what goes through my heart. I would just love to reject him with an ungracious manner. Because that's the way it works, isn't it? When we feel the pain, when we feel the anger, I will forget that he is somebody's child. I will forget that for all I know, he is my neighbor in heaven. Because you and I, we like to make walls that we get smaller and smaller and smaller and accept me, Jesus, and then let's start making some rules around here. But I wonder if Jesus might look back at me and say, wait a minute, did you forget I let you in? And these city walls, the reason I'm asking you to build these walls is not so you can wall it off and kick people out and exclude people from coming in and somehow create division and attack one another. I'm asking you to build these walls to lift people up. To show my character to demonstrate what grace is. And by the way, grace is the thing that you don't earn and it flies in the face of the exact opposite of earning it. I don't know what you think your identity is. I think my identity is here today. I just recall these words from the book of Revelation. And after I looked, after this I looked, 
And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation. It wasn't a small group. It was an uncountable number. There was, you, uh, some, when you looked, you noticed the walls. They're not quite as close as I thought they were. They've gotten wider and they've gotten bigger and there is a big, huge group in here that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people language and standing there before them, before the Lamb this multitude. You see, the Jesus we follow is building something bigger on the inside than is on the outside, and he's inviting others in, and he's not only inviting you in, he's inviting the one who hurt your family. So what are we going to do? Back away? Leave? I never talk to you again? Jesus would say, take up a cross and follow me. Go where I go. Do what I do. Forgive and give grace. So I'd like to invite you to build however you've been hurt, or how whoever you have hurt, I want to invite you to build alongside me that we would build a place, a body, a city whose walls are all about lifting up the glory of this Jesus we've come to know. Lord God, Lord, right now, I lift to you my child. Could you show up in power? Lord, I lift to you this man who doesn't even know how he's hurt me. And I pray for your character to grow up in me. Could you bless us with a kind of exorbitant grace that would cause others who are on the outside to say I don't even understand quite what they believe I just know it would be better if I were in there so Lord we plead forgiveness for the ways we've rejected others so often not just out there but in here We know, we know, you have the power to make all things new. That includes me. So bless us today with your creative, refreshing spirit, drenching us and helping us to build something that lifts you higher. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.